thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Our instrumentation guys are really the unsung heroes of our test programs. They're thinking about where they can install cameras or those accelerometers. So we have monitor hundreds and even up to you know over a thousand parameters on a test aircraft at any time. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And lately on these episodes, the non-numbered ones, we've just been introducing the subject and maybe the co-host and getting right to it. And some of you audience members have complained that you sort of miss the pre-2023 format with my usual Jello-isms and updates and listener questions. So we're going to change that up today. And I've got Ken Katz joining me to just kind of banter a little bit. We'll answer a few questions, talk about our lives and get to a fun interview he's got. Primetime, how's it going? Well, hi, Jello. It's been a while. Looking forward to catching up. <laughs> no doubt. I can't really say welcome to the show because in a lot of ways, you have been the show lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not overstate it, but it's been fun to put on some episodes with some really cool guests. No doubt. And I've got it on my little agenda here to ask you about some of the episodes you have released lately and what we are going to talk about today. But first off, what's new with you? I mean, like I said, we've heard from you, but we don't really know what's happening in your life, maybe. Well, I've been really busy at my real job. Partly, we've been doing proposal work for putting on a system on a new military aircraft. Partly, it's been sustaining our current products. We're facing some very serious challenges with the supply chain for electronic components. And for aerospace systems, if something isn't available, you just can't put on a replacement part. It's a big deal because first, the replacement part itself has to be qualified to show that it complies with the specifications. And then the system that uses the part needs to be requalified with the new part. And all that requires some combination of analysis and tests. So it's quite an expensive and time-consuming exercise. And we're always in a hurry because if you can't buy some stinking $5 part, then that's some six-figure system that you aren't delivering. And then in turn, the aircraft manufacturer isn't delivering a multi-million dollar airplane. So for want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. It puts us under a lot of pressure. Ken, let me respond to that real quick because I recently custom ordered a new pickup truck. And one of the features the dealer was telling me I could not get was the little camera embedded in the third light above the bed that you can, as you're going down the road, take a look at what's happening in the bed of your truck. And I said, why not? That sounds like a cool feature. I'd like to have that. He says, it's just not in the supply chain. So we can't click on it on your order sheet here because they just don't have it. So is this still like COVID leftovers? I mean, we don't have to go too deep into this, but what's going on in our world? People don't want to work because they're getting paid to stay home or issues with companies or countries that provide us these you know, that's a good question, and I'm pretty removed from the actual issues of sourcing components, so I don't have a good answer for you. But what I do know in aerospace is that every single part 
that goes into an airplane is very rigidly controlled and specified and tested and qualified. And when we have to change something, we have to move heaven and earth to do it because we have to prove that it's as safe as what it preceded it. And it's a big deal. So even minor disruptions, you know, you can have 99.9% of something. And if you don't have the last remaining part, you can't build it. And not just you can't build it, but you can't just substitute in something else that you think is going to work. So like in my airline capacity, if they had everything but the front two wheels, well, they can't just put bicycle wheels on there because that's not going to work too well and take off or landing. That's right. But it couldn't just be a wheel. It could be a nut or a bolt that holds the wheel in place and you're done. Well, what about outside of work? We hear your Piper Archer make the uh, show quite often. It needs to be its own honorary member, I guess. But what else is happening in your world? Well, actually, this morning I didn't have work, so I took the mighty Piper Archer up. I need to get back in the saddle with IFR because in New England, you don't want to fly in clouds in the winter. You'll ice up and the airplane has no capability to handle icing, unlike your jet. So uh, the weather's getting better around here. I went up with a safety pilot. I shot some instrument approaches. It wasn't perfect, but it was definitely the checkride standard. So uh, that was fun. I really liked that. And I enjoy instrument approaches a lot. I'm also helping my EAA chapter build an airplane, which is a Vans RV-12. And uh, every week it looks more and more like an airplane. So I'm uh, having a lot of fun. Well, I bet you would agree, Ken, and we've made the point on this show a few times, aviation, like a lot of skills, proficiency is important. And so if you don't fly for a while, all of a sudden go out and get in your airplane and try to fly an instrument meteorological conditions or shoot an approach or really do anything, just even flying itself, that's a skill that's very perishable. Oh, it absolutely is. And in particular, instrument flying rules, IFR type flying in little airplanes, you've got to either do it proficiently or not do it at all. Because unlike, let's say, an air transport operation like you do, you're a single pilot, you don't have all the automation, you don't do this professionally, and it can be very, very dangerous if you exceed your skill level. So I either have a rule where I either have done it a lot or I don't do it at all until I get back in the saddle. And I also don't do certain things like I don't combine my risks. I don't fly at night and do instruments. It's just too much. Oh, that makes sense. That sounds prudent, Ken. And I guess that's why you're still around after all these years. Yeah. Well, they're old pilots and they're bold pilots, but they're no <laughs> old, bold pilots. And I'm kind of old, so I guess I'm not that bold. <laughs> Fair enough. But let's talk about you. I know that you've had some very interesting things doing in your life. So what's doing? Well, I appreciate that. And that, again, that is why at the top we talked about making this sort of one of the pre-2023 format shows because we haven't really updated folks on things in a while. And I would say in general, things are going very well. Our pivot to video this year has been fun, but gosh, Ken, it's challenging in its own way. I know you've dabbled in some video. Just trying to get guests into the studio in the old days, we could dial in like you and I are doing right now. I'm in a layover hotel in Atlanta, having flown the red eye in last night. And so it's just easy to click into the internet here and put on a microphone and go. But when you want to put people in the studio, it's a lot more effort. Plus the production, you know, takes a lot of time and costly. And so that's been a challenge. We thought we would do one every week and we're far from it. So instead, every once in a while, we put up different videos just to keep the YouTube monster fed. And I'll tell you, Ken, Bones, our episode 155 guest, we had talked about on that episode, this F5 that he was restoring. Well, he went for the first flight and he flew it. And he had someone in the back seat record the whole thing. And so he sends me this video and I don't do a thing to it, Ken. I just put it up on YouTube. 
And these shows that we work so hard for interviewing and lining up the guests and producing, you know, we get 10 or 15, maybe 25,000 views. Well, this thing, last time I looked at it with no effort whatsoever, just posting what Bones gave me, is like 185,000 views. And my wife keeps telling me, why are you complaining? Just be glad you have it. I said, but it's like, I don't get it. Like, should I do less work? Will it do better? (laughs) And so I think maybe it's a combination of the subject and the title and the thumbnail, but it's funny. I've been trying to figure out YouTube and I haven't done it yet. Well, it's an interesting thing. First of all, that was a very cool video. And I was just thinking, gee, I'd like to have been in the backseat of that F5. But, you know, it's, I think, an interesting discussion point, whether audio only or audio plus visual, what's the ideal combination of those things? Because some people listen to these things, as I often do when I'm driving, whereas watching a video about an F5 flying around, I can't do that while I'm driving. But listening to a guest talk about the CMV-22B, I can do that while I'm driving. So it's an interesting thing. And, you know, we have to uh, learn and adapt as we go along. Speaking of him, Sam Flesh, as his call sign is, he retired recently. So he is now a civilian with us and uh, looking for greener pastures. But the video thing is going fine. It's just a lot of work, but that's the way it goes. Other than that, I am still working on my memoirs and I'm providing a chapter a month, actually, to Patreon. I'm finding it somewhat cathartic to go back through my life and check my logbook and talk to my mom and other people about different things. The part I was writing about the night I met my wife, I kept asking her the different questions. And she said, well, for heaven's sakes, how much detail are you putting in there? I said, not a lot, but I just want to frame the sentence correctly. So I'm finding writing both fun and agonizing at the same time. And Ken, as an author, I'm sure you can attest to that. And speaking of that, I wanted to ask you how your B1 book is doing. You know, the ratings keep rolling in and getting lots of nice comments. I'm actually going to be doing an author's corner at Oshkosh this summer in a presentation. So last summer, you know, I kept running into people at Oshkosh. She said, oh, are you the Ken Katz on Fighter Pilot Podcast? And was like, yeah, no, it's great. So I'm hoping a lot of people show up and, you know, I I get to meet a lot of Fighter Pilot Podcast people face to face. And one of these days, I want to twist your arm to get up there to Oshkosh. It is incredible. You will not have to twist very hard. I would love to go. It's on my bucket list, as they say. Just haven't ever been able to pull it off. And the fact that I'm relatively junior again at my airline means it's hard to get time off over the summer. But we'll see if we can figure that out. Anyway, just uh, wrapping up what's going on with me on a personal level. I am now a fully trained captain at my airline. And I'm on my second trip, as I mentioned, flying the red eye last night. And that's going pretty well. I, I find I actually enjoy the left seat quite a bit. I've got a question about that. When you say you're fully trained, as I understand it, there's a period called initial operating experience where you don't fly as a new captain, you don't fly with a first officer, but you fly with an instructor of some sort. When you say fully trained, are you in that initial operating experience period or are you past there and now you fly with a line first officer? Right. The latter. I am fully done with, I did two weeks of simulator training in January of 23. And then I had about a month off as they were trying to keep up with all the new trainees. And then in March, I flew with, like you said, different training captains who acted as FOs, first officers in the right seat. And they would do their best to act like a good FO, but also then coach me and mentor me as I was going along. Hey, don't forget to think about this, or this is why this procedure exists. And so I finished that up. Gosh, what are we recording here in early April? I think I finished that right at the end of March. 
And I have had now two trips. I'm on my second trip with regular new hire first officers, both of them in their first year at the company. And because of that, they're on probation. And when we're done, I have to write a little evaluation of their performance. And so, yeah, I'm the guy. And last night we had a little medical challenge with one of the passengers, had some problem back there. And, you know, you got to handle all that and figure out if you're going to your destination or stopping short. You got to deal with weather and fuel and all those different things. But as I said earlier, I, I find I really like it because... I don't know. It's not an ego thing, I don't think, but just knowing you're the person who the buck stops with you and you're in command and that's kind of cool. So it's reinvigorated this job that as longtime listeners may remember, there was a time through COVID and even after COVID, I thought about quitting. There was parts of it I didn't like and the commute just kicks my butt and it still does. But I thought, oh, I'll just become a podcaster or break in a video or something else. I don't know. But as soon as they selected me for this position last summer, and then I didn't get trained until January, like I said, I basically told my wife, I said, all right, enough vacillating. I'll stick with it because we also have a new contract in our company for pilots. And it's a pretty handsome compensation, dare I say. What's the biggest change between being a first officer and being a captain from your perspective? Well, on a tactical level, your hands are different. It used to be fly the yoke with your right hand and the throttles with your left. Now it's the opposite. And the buttons where you actuate the communications are different and for the auto throttles and autopilot. So you just got to get your fingers all in tune with what they're supposed to be doing. But I would say the biggest thing is just maintaining situational awareness. And as a private pilot, Ken, I'm sure you can appreciate this. Not just situational awareness, but staying ahead of the airplane. Where are we going? What's coming up? I have to think about turbulence, which if you're strapped in a fighter is not a big deal, but even strapped into my front seat there in the airline is still to me, not a big deal, but I have to remember the flight attendants in the back who might be serving drinks or standing up. And if the thing they're standing on, i.e. the floor of the aircraft suddenly drops out five feet, they're going to hit their head or land on someone. So I have to think about weather. I have to think about turbulence, fuel, medical emergencies, all kinds of different things. So just the cerebral part of it is probably the hardest. You do raise an interesting point, though, about moving from one seat to the other. I normally fly in the left seat, but I'm going to be starting training as a flight instructor moving to the right seat. I'm a very strong left-hander. I'm not like ambidextrous at all. And I find moving from one seat to the other and swapping which controls are on which hands to be a challenge. I bet. Anyway, just wrapping up this segment. So the airline captain thing is going well. My wife and I are celebrating our silver anniversary this year, and we're going to do that by spending a week in the Turks and Caicos in May. So really looking forward to that. And then my boys, one is about to graduate college, actually, which is crazy. Uh, another is a freshman in college. And then my third is a sophomore in high school. And for all of you who have third kids out there, you know the challenges, at least it seems like stereotypically with that third one. And Oh boy, he's a lot of fun. We love him, but he just uh, can I don't understand because his mother and I are both very successful, but he would rather skate and surf than spend time on an education, which we keep trying to impress on him is important in his future success. You know, I have three children also. My oldest is uh, graduating law school next month and she's going to get married in August. But it's interesting how these kids, they have the same parents, so they come from the same genetics and the same upbringing and they all are so different. It's almost like a baker taking the same ingredients and ending up with a cake one time and a muffin or something another time. It's probably a dumb analogy, but again, this episode is about bringing back some of my jelloisms. but it's the same ingredients, arguably the same upbringing, although my youngest will attest that he's treated differently than his two brothers were. So anyway. But congratulations on the milestones, both professional and personal. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that, Ken. 
So one thing we've not done in a long time are cover some listener questions. And we don't get as many anymore, but I've had a few that have been sitting around. So let's knock these out and then we will move on to some of your past shows and the show for today. Now, the first is an email from Jeremy from Indianapolis who says, do squadrons with multi-seat aircraft, and then he lists some examples, FA-18F, helicopters, etc., try to keep the same crews together when possible? I'm guessing that it's partially Hollywood to keep them together, but I would imagine that crews who routinely work together can develop a shorthand with each other and become more efficient. That's a great question, Jeremy. So I was never assigned to a two-seat squadron, but I flew with them often as a Top Gun instructor and a weapons school instructor, as well as when I was the air wing operations officer in Japan. And yes, from my understanding, if you're just day-to-day shore operations, not much is going on. It really doesn't matter who you pair with. In fact, many times they'll take a new pilot or new backseater or sideseater and put them with a more experienced pilot or other crew member. But once they start going to, say, Top Gun or Air Wing Fallon, or I noticed this because we had two-seat squadrons in my Air Wing, when we arrived off the coast of, say, Iraq, they would have combat pairings so that for your reason you stated there, Jeremy, they don't have to spend a ton of time on some of the isms of each pilot or Wizzo. They can just get right to it. And they know because they've flown together, so they kind of know what each other are thinking. So I think it just depends, as we often say here on the show. And if it really matters, then yes, they try to keep crew pairing because that way it just can be a little more efficient when there's so many other things that are changing. Well, at least in the 1980s, which is my time of reference, the Strategic Air Command used what they called hard crews. So they kept the same people together who flew together. Whereas the Military Airlift Command used more of an airline model where everyone was considered to be interchangeable and they could just assign people as needed. I don't know what the Tactical Air Command did with multi-seat fighters, but I'm going to guess that they probably followed the Strategic Air Command model of having hard crews. Well, and I think it depends, like we do, right? If they're going to red flag or deploying, especially on early missions, uh, I would assume they keep crews together, but maybe they do all the time. I'm not sure. I just know from scheduling point of view, right? If one is sick or has a snivel, as we used to call it, for some time off, but the other needs a mission, then sometimes it's easier to get that other crew member. Jeremy did say helicopters. I don't have any experience with that. I do know You've got those side-by-side crews in not only helicopters, but the Osprey and the CODs, E2s. And so I can't really speak to that. But if someone out there wants to write the show, you can let us know. and Maybe we can update that in the future or put a social media post or something. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hello, Jello, Fire Pilot Podcast. This is Dutch from Lodi, California. Hey, Really quick, when I review on YouTube, I look at carrier landings, carrier crashes, and why is the quality of the filming so poor? It's like the Wright brothers when they filmed their first flight in 1903. It just seems poor quality, and it doesn't seem to have improved over the last since you know FH1 demons or FH3 demons. But anyway, without trying to be funny, and I'm not talking about the crosshair one where you can look at the ready room, but the one up in the crow's nest area, I'm not sure what that's called. Why is the poor quality in the filming of carrier landings? All right, Dutch, thanks for your question and thanks for waiting. I know you've submitted this one a long time ago. So what you're talking about is the pilot landing aid television or the plat. And the short answer is, I don't know. My guess is that it's old technology that works 
and it needs to be able to record the same environment both day and night. And because military applications, and Ken, you could probably speak to this better than I can, need to go through such rigorous testing to make sure they're not affected by electromagnetic interference and that they have the right power. Yeah, right. If it was Tesla or Apple or Coca-Cola or somebody, GM, they could probably change the camera and make it much better right away. But for the military, specifically the Navy, to your question, hey, it works. It's good enough. And they use it and record everything and can still use it for investigation analysis and mishap analysis, et cetera. So who knows? Maybe they are looking at something new on the George H.W. Bush and future carriers. But for every carrier I was on, it was always the same, as you say, somewhat crummy quality. And it was good enough for our purposes. One of the things that I would think about if someone came to me and said, we got to change it, is I would say, why? Yeah, it may be moderately crummy, but is it good enough? I think that the most likely reason why they would change it is because they can't get spare parts anymore for an older technology. And at that point, you just have to start over and then you get something newer and better and sharper. But if you still have the parts available and you have something that works good enough, you probably don't want to mess with it. So true. Next, let's take an email from Marco who says, in Top Gun Maverick, when Hangman was sitting on the carrier, what was his role and who sent him to rescue Maverick and Rooster? Thanks. Love the show. Changed my life. I don't know if he means the podcast or the movie, but I'm going to assume the podcast. So thank you, Marco. We do actually hear from many people who say the show has made a difference in their lives, whether they thought about being pilots or wanted to or whatever. So that's always a compliment I enjoy hearing. So Hangman was ostensibly on Alert 7. It used to be Alert 5, but nowadays it's Alert 7. So he's in the aircraft. He's ready to go at a moment's notice. And the decision to do that is usually communicated by the TAO, the Tactical Action Officer. But that decision will be based on, and I was never a TAO on the carrier, but from what I understand, there's a lot of information that comes into combat. And it could be that there's a warfare commander that based on the big picture they're looking at says, okay, launch the alert or maybe the TAO has that authority. But generally speaking, the tactical situation will dictate what defenses you have in the air. And that might be predicated on things that are established in advance. So you remember in the first movie, the guy who was sort of everything, the air wing commander, the squadron commander, and the TAO picks up the phone, launch Maverick and uh, whoever on cats, whatever. Whenever I turn on the microphone, Ken, I can't remember specifics like that, but I know everybody who's listening can remember the scene. But at any rate, When that call comes down, that could be based on, hey, if anyone gets in within 150 miles based on what we think the threat to be, well, then we need this many aircraft airborne. And so it could be a real-time situation. It could be just that someone's looking at what they've decided or sort of the battle situation. There's probably a better term for it in the area where you are. I think I muddied through that one a little bit. I don't know, Ken, anything to add? I probably screwed that up. No, you're outside my area of expertise. I've got a whole 22 hours on the Abraham Lincoln, and that's the extent of my career experience. But a very cool 22 hours. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, if you'd spent 220 hours or 2,200 hours, I spent over three years on carriers. It gets to look a little different. But anyway, that's for a different time. Finally, let's finish with another phone call. Hey, Jello. This is Sam from El Paso, Texas. I was calling with a question about the G profile of different aircrafts in the U.S. military. So I know most airframes are rated up to 9 Gs, but I was wondering, I guess more specifically, does the average F-35 pilot pull significantly less Gs than the average F-18, F-22, F-15 pilot? And I'm assuming this is strictly based on mission set. So I'd love if you could kind of explain that when you have a chance. Appreciate it. 
All right, Sam, thanks for your call and the question. If I understand correctly, you're trying to ask if, depending on what you fly, are you more likely to pull more Gs more often? Now, the first thing I will say is the F-18 Hornet and Super Hornet are limited to 7.5 Gs, except for the Swiss models, which they actually decided they wanted to fly up to 9 Gs. And even the American Hornets could do it. They would just wear out faster. But they would also have to change the logic in the flight controls to allow it to do that. But from my point of view, I mean, if I'm in a certain mission, then I'm more likely to pull more Gs. Even in the F-18, there was times I didn't barely pull any Gs, depending on what I was doing. And then there would be a BFM mission where we would pull so many Gs in full afterburner that we'd use up all our gas and come home right away and be soaked in sweat because it was high contact kind of thing. I don't know that much about the F-35 as far as its mission set. From what I've gleaned from our guests on the show, it's doing a little bit more standoff quarterbacking, maybe sneaking in. And if it's pulling a lot of Gs, it's probably not where it wants to be, but it can do that, as you state correctly, up to nine Gs to fight for its life. What I understand Right There's a lot of controversy about, is it as good as some of the others? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I would think most F-35 guys would say, if we're there, then it's just like a fist fight. You do whatever you got to do. Punch, gouge, bite, pull hair, whatever, because it's a fight for your life. So I don't know if I'm answering Sam's question here, but the question is, as I understand it, will an F-35 pilot pull 9Gs as often as an F-22 pilot? And I just don't know how to answer that. All right, Ken, anything to add to that? Again, probably outside of your lane a little bit. Just a bit. (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to do it for questions for not just this week, but dare I say, sort of the show. And not because the show is ending, but we've just changed the format, as uh, I think most listeners know. We've gone to the YouTube format, which is more of a, we've got the interview right away. and We've got some listener questions from our Patreon supporters which you can be a part of if you just head over to Patreon and look for us and support the show and you get all kinds of cool perks as well. And also, I hate to say it, but we are suspending the 877 Mach 101 hotline just because it's another expense that for the last three months, we've not been seeing a lot of phone calls on and we're not really answering these kinds of questions anymore. So I haven't gotten rid of it, but we've reduced the cost quite a bit and we're just kind of sitting on it to see if we should let it go completely or what we want to do. So... Thanks to all of you throughout the years who have submitted questions. It's been a fun segment for me. And who knows, it could find its way back on a future episode like this one, where Ken and I or someone else sit down and catch up and clear out the mailbag, as we say. All right, Ken. So before we get to today's interview, let's look back at some of your recent contributions, starting with Tim Kinsella. I think we called that non-destructive testing. I wasn't really sure at the time what to call it. And some listeners said, Yeah, wow, I didn't know if I would enjoy that, but I really did. And I think that's the point of some of these topics that you cover is it can be a little nerdy. And I know I tease you for that. I apologize, but I have to as a fighter pilot and you're a flight test engineer. But isn't that the beauty of podcasting is you have the ability to have a show like this that can go really deep on a really narrow subject. Well, I had a lot of fun with this episode. Tim approached me through a mutual friend who I met while working on the B1 book. And, you know, aerospace engineering is a really broad thing. And there's no way on earth that you can know everything. And this is something I just didn't know practically anything about at all. So I was learning along with the listeners on this one. And when Tim approached me, I said, well, you know, this is interesting to me, but maybe this is a little bit too wonky, a little bit too nerdy for the Fighter Pilot Podcast audience. And he said, no, 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 no. This is the coolest stuff ever. Okay. We brainstormed on this one and we thought about how to introduce it in the context of overall aircraft structures, 
loads, materials, and then getting into the testing. And I think it worked out pretty well. I thought it was a neat episode. And Tim's was a really good guest. Well, and that is the point I was just thinking about making when you finished was you can have the boringest, arguably, subject in the world, but with the right guest, you can make it fun. And the flip side of that, unfortunately, is you can have a sexy subject and someone can come along and screw it up if they either talk too little or too much, arguably, or on the wrong things or just have an interesting way about them. So, you know, Ken, I, again, I love my analogies. I think of the show as sort of a buffet, right? You made a dish. We put it on the buffet. Some people looked at it and decided I'm going to scoop some on my plate. Other people looked at it and decided they didn't want to try it because they didn't think they would like it. And in the end, I think some people said, well, maybe I'll try it and found out they liked it. And so, I don't know, we're here to edutain people. And I thought you did that on that show. And if some people missed it, that was their loss. But I think for the few folks who listened but weren't sure, they all seemed to really like it. So I guess that's the point. I take a real simple approach to this. If I think that it might interest me, I suspect it'll interest some other people. Not because I'm so special, but because I don't think my tastes are that different from a lot of other people. So I said, I think that's going to be interesting. We just have to think through how we're going to introduce the subject. So uh, really enjoyed that session. For sure. And then you had Danny Millman, I think it was, Doc. Yes. And you talked about hypersonic technology, which I, by the way, titled hypersonics. And I kept getting the little word document red underline. I guess that's not a real word, but nobody's given me any grief about it yet. But I thought that was a really fun discussion. The only thing, Ken, was you led into it, a little foreplay there at the beginning with, hey, anyone who's seen Top Gun Maverick has seen the Dark Star. And then the whole time I was like, you're going to come back to this, right? You're going to come back to it and tell us what was right and wrong and ridiculous and all that. And then you kind of just left us hanging, which is good because then of course people want more. But what'd you think of that episode? And then I want to ask you about Top Gun Maverick if I can. I had a lot of fun with that episode too. First of all, it's just a fascinating subject. And we got as a guest, one of the nation's leading experts on the subject. So that was quite a coup. I met Danny at Oshkosh a couple of years ago. The other thing that was interesting is that, you know, we were in the same squadron at Edwards. We flew in the same airplanes. We know some of the same people. So uh, it was a little bit of a fun situation in that way. But I was thinking about Dark Star and I was uh, thinking about it. I'm certainly not an expert on hypersonic aerodynamics or propulsion. You know, I sort of read what everybody else reads who's in the field, but I I'm not an expert at all. And I was thinking about some of the things that Doc was talking about. And then I was looking at pictures and videos of the Dark Star in the movie. And so I broke it into two things, things that I thought were realistic and things that I thought were unrealistic. So first of all, the thing that was realistic was that if you're going to start off at airspeed zero at takeoff, and then you're going to accelerate to Mach 10, not you're going to have some air-launched vehicle that has a rocket booster that shoots you up and then you light off your hypersonic engine. You need to have what's called an adaptive cycle engine, an engine that can basically morph between a turbojet and a ramjet and a scramjet. And Doc talked about this. And in the movie, you actually see that in action. I thought that was really cool. You're looking down the inlet and you see this door shuts off the airflow to the compressor. And then the engine is converting from being a turbojet to a ramjet. So that was very cool. When I saw that, I said, oh yeah, this is cool stuff. So now the things that were not so realistic, if you look at the Dark Star, it has a nose that comes to a sharp point. And Doc Millman pointed out in the episode on hypersonic flight that you can't have 
sharp noses on hypersonic aircraft. They have to have a rounded nose and the leading edges have to be rounded off too. In a way, it looks much less streamlined to our eyes. But if you don't do that, the shock wave, when you round it off, the shock wave kind of stands off from the nose. If you have a sharp nose, the shock wave attaches right at the nose. So what you have is you have this massive, powerful shock wave that's generating heat like there's no tomorrow. And it's going into this sharp nose. So there's very little mass to absorb the heat and conduct it away. So you're going to get a rounded nose when that sharp nose melts. So I don't think that a actual Mach 10 aircraft would have a sharp nose like Darkstar has. And if you look at, say, like an X-43 or an X-51, they don't have that kind of sharp nose. Well, let me jump in here, Ken, because I'm guessing they were appealing to the viewer's eye who has maybe seen an SR-71. It looks somewhat like a little brother, but right one thing I learned on that show was what describes hypersonic. And if I remember correctly, it's Mach 5. And the SR-71 was limited to about 3, but I don't think they ever acknowledged 3. I think it was 2.9 something. But So I think they were going for maybe visual aesthetics there. Oh, absolutely. In fact, a aircraft that actually was designed for hypersonics wouldn't be as cool. <laughs> so, which leads us to the next thing. The Dark Star's engine inlets are shaped incorrectly for hypersonic flight. Doc talked about how when you have a scramjet engine, which is what you need to be flying at those speeds, the entire forebody of the aircraft becomes the inlet. And you don't have like these like scoops like you would on an airplane that's flying maybe Mach 1 or Mach 2. And the inlets on the Dark Star not only wouldn't supply air with the right pressure recovery and the right mass flow to the engines, but because you've got these thin, sharp edge structures, they'd also just melt off. So that wouldn't work very well. But here's something that really struck me. They show the Dark Star doing this tight turn and it looks right and it's wrong. Because now, now do the math on turn radius. At 400 knots, when your Boeing airliner is at 30 degrees bank, you're doing a turn radius of about five miles. And we know that the turn radius is proportional to velocity squared. So if you've got an SR-71 at about Mach 3, you've got a turn radius of 100 miles. Now, I did the numbers, and at Mach 10 and 30 degrees of bank, you've got a turn radius of about 1,000 miles. And what that means is that if you're, you, know, you take off from the secret desert base and you then fly east parallel to about the United States' southern border with Mexico, and you put it into a 30-degree turn for 180 degrees of heading change, when you roll out headed west, you're up by the Canadian border. So yeah, the turn looks right in the movie, but you can't <laughs> do a tight turn at those speeds. So that was something that really struck me. And then the final thing was, you know, at one point in the flight, Maverick gets a windshield over temperature caution. And any real test pilot would be knocking off the point at that thing. He kept going because I guess, you know, it, his it call looks sign cool. is Maverick. Come on. Right. Well, here's what would happen when the windshield gave in, pieces of windshield would be flying into his face at about 6,000 miles an hour. And his movie star face would definitely be rearranged as the pieces of windshield hit it at 6,000 miles an hour. That hurts. Actually, it wouldn't hurt. It would be so quick you wouldn't feel a thing. You know, actually, aside from engineering, there was something that sort of did it 
for some reason, real test pilots don't seem to get into the movies. There's probably a reason for that. But <laughs> our listeners have met a variety of test pilots, people like Addison Thompson and Laz and Divid on some of my episodes. And real test pilots are super highly disciplined people. They're very systematic. They're very discipline oriented. They're uh, kind of techie like I am. And the Pete Mitchell character just doesn't come across as a test pilot. He's too impulsive. Well, it was a majestic scene, you know, and as yeah, it's, it's yeah. describing it's that mo- turn. Right, exactly. But there's some guy named Jello who said, if I recall about this movie, quote, it's not a documentary. Oh, I didn't coin that. That was, I think, uh, one of the producers or directors. But we did a reaction video to the movie when it came out in May of 22. And one thing the panel and I just did not address at all was the fact that he survives the breakup of dark star. And so invariably in the comments on YouTube, which YouTube comments can be very colorful, but don't get me started. People say, well, wait a minute. What about you guys didn't even talk about this. And I said, well, yeah, because it's so outrageous. You're not going to survive that. But what I would tell people is, well, maybe there was a capsule like the F-111, but based on the way it shows with the canopy up as he's pulling out of the hangar or whatever, I think it was up, but maybe not. At any rate, yeah, I don't think there was a capsule, but hey, who's going to want to watch a movie where the hero dies in the first five minutes? So, you know, that's actually an interesting thing because on the one hand, I mean, you're going really fast. On the other hand, if you're up there at 80 or 100,000 feet, of course, the air density is very low. So the dynamic pressure probably isn't much different. I mean, if you are flying along an F-15E at you know Mach 1 on the deck and you have to punch out, you're probably getting hit with about as high dynamic pressure as Mach 10 at 100,000 feet. So I don't think that it's the dynamic pressure per se. I think that the heating might be a problem on your pressure suit. And the fact that your aircraft just broke up and you're getting hit by debris going 6,000 miles an hour might be kind of rough also. Our little bodies are not so durable in those environments. So that dynamic pressure, is that Q? Is that what we're about to learn with uh, Bam Bam coming up on this? next? That's right. Q is one half times the air density times the velocity squared. So you can be going very fast, but if the air is thin, then you don't have that much dynamic pressure. Conversely, if you're on the deck and you're going, let's say, only 540 or, or 600 knots, I mean, that's a violent ejection because the dynamic pressure is very high, even though the airspeed isn't that high. And flail injuries are a big deal when that happens. And there's a handful of people who have ejected at high speeds, and they generally look pretty beat up if they survive at all. That's pretty frightening stuff. Anyway, I was trying to use that as a segue into Shannon, but was there more you wanted to talk about on hypersonic? Well, yeah, I think one of the questions is, do we actually have something like Dark Star flying today? Forget the particular little nits that I pointed out, but do we have a vehicle like that today? And what I mean is a manned aircraft or perhaps even an unmanned aircraft that can take off and land conventionally and then go up to Mach 10. And as the saying would go, those who know don't tell and those who tell don't know. But I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is we've got a lot of hypersonic projects today. And if we could really do a conventional takeoff on a runway and get up to Mach 10, most of the projects that we know about today, like Hawk and Arrow and some of the things that uh, Danny talked about, they'd be big steps backwards. So I don't even know why we'd be doing them if we had something like Dark Star flying today. But I hope I'm wrong because 
we all love this cool stuff. And let's check back in about 20 years when uh, more of the subjects declassify. Well, we'll have a lot of episodes between now and then, Ken. So I hope we remember. We'll have to make ourselves a note. Absolutely. Okay, good stuff. Well, this is fun. I've sort of forgotten how much fun it is to just banter about things on this show, but uh, this has been great. But why don't we start transitioning into our interview and tell us about our guest and the subject. Well, Bam Bam and I met when I was her technical session chairman at last fall's Society of Flight Test Engineers Symposium, and we hit it off. And I said, you know, she'd be a great guest. So I asked her. She's a cool person and she's a real leader in aerospace. She's gotten a lot of prominence for some of the stuff that her team has done and some of the presentations that she's made recently. Listen in. And if you want to understand how aircraft are really tested, let's talk to some people who do it. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed this interview, Ken, and I wrote down a couple notes that I'm hoping you can help me understand when we get done. So let's get to it and we'll pick it back up on the other side. Every aircraft must have a first flight. The risks inherent to first flights and envelope expansion flight testing require special techniques. In this episode, we will be discussing this particular aspect of flight testing with Shannon Bam Bam Lunsford. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me today. Why don't we start off by uh, hearing about your background, your education, where you're from, what you've worked on? Sure. So I grew up in New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, and uh, realized I needed to get out of there as soon as I could. So I went down to Florida to the beach to uh, go to Embry-Riddle, did a BS in aerospace engineering there in Daytona, and uh, just about a year ago finished my master's in engineering management from Embry-Riddle Worldwide Online. While I was there, I got to do some internships at Eclipse Aviation. I started in the certification and safety group and quickly realized that flight test was the place to be. And they let me come back the following summer in flight test. And then I was lucky enough to get a full-time position there uh, right after graduation. So I started full-time in January 2005. So stayed at Eclipse until about 2008. Um, so I got to go through the initial certification and several STCs. Got to see a little bit of all the different types of flight testing from handling qualities, performance, system, icing, avionics, electrical work, uh, really exposure to everything. Then I went to Diamond Aircraft for about two years, worked on another clean sheet design, the Diamond D-Jet. And then in uh, 2010, came down to Wichita to work at what was then Beechcraft and later became Textron Aviation. Um, So worked mainly the small Part 23 projects, Premier 2, which was marketed as the Hawker 200 jet. Then I came over to Defense and worked on the T-6 and the AT-6. Then moved over to the Scorpion jet and became the lead flight test engineer for that project. And then in 2018, went over to the Sky Courier project and uh, became the FTE manager for that. And recently came back over to Defense in April of last year, uh, working back on the T6 and AT6 projects. Well, let's hear about some of these aircraft. That's quite a diverse set of aircraft there. More recently, the T-6, of course, is the military trainer that both the Air Force and the Navy use. It's been pretty widely exported also. But what's an AT-6? So the T-6 was so successful, um, like you mentioned, it's the primary trainer for the U.S. Air Force and Navy. 
We're also at 13 other countries and counting uh, that use that test aircraft. So we decided to put a bigger engine on it and integrate some mission and weapon systems into it. So we have a, an engine that has a, it's a PT-6 engine still. It's got about 50% more horsepower than the T-6. We installed the KICU, which is the mission computer uh, right off of the A-10. And uh, we have six hard points on there for carrying various weapons. It actually received the military type certificate just this past year, and we're getting ready to roll the first production one off the line for uh, use in another country. So it's really exciting. What kind of weapons and sensors are on the AT-6? We can carry, oh gosh, a Hellfire missile, uh, laser-guided rockets. We can carry dumb bombs and, and laser-guided bombs. We have done gun pods. Of course, we have external fuel tanks on there as well. So it's got a whole plethora of choices, as well as an MX-15 camera sensor. Which is uh, infrared and television? It is an electrical, optical, and infrared camera. And you got to do some of the flying in that, didn't you? I did. So back in the day, uh, 2012 to 2014 timeframe, we collected a lot of the initial flight test data. We basically kept it in reports here at the company, and that's what was used for that military type cert over the past year. Now, what about the Scorpion? That's kind of an interesting aircraft. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, I love the Scorpion. I was I was lucky to get on it uh, fairly early on, about the 2014 timeframe. It started as a proof of concept uh, to try to fill a potential void for what the military uh, may look for in the future. Uh, it was kind of a, if you build it, they will come type of project. The aircraft itself can be ISR, so intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, can be used as a trainer with same flight controls in front and back cockpits, light attack aircraft, so it does have the camera sensor as well as six hard points on the wings. So really a lot of different opportunities. It can be used for close air support, maritime security, training. We had the first flight of the prototype occurred in December of 2013. And the first production unit, which was basically the prototype with a bunch of modifications to it, flew three years later in December 2016. A few stats on the airplane. It's a 22,000 pound max takeoff weight, about 450 knots true airspeed, which is one of the fastest products that uh, Cessna has ever made down low. 45,000 feet with a range of about 1,600 nautical miles on it. Is actually the first aircraft to have a G3000M avionics suite, uh, which is the Garmin G3000. So they took it from a side-by-side -side from some of their business jets and made it into a tandem seat type of use. They've since gone on to certify that and put it in other aircraft. And it also has a federated Windows-based mission system. So there's a separate mission computer that feeds in as a video input into the Garmin displays. So with one quick button, we can swap it over from the Garmin displays into the mission computer without the two actually interfering with each other. Can carry pretty much all of the same weapons that the AT-6 can carry. So the Hellfire, rocket pods, bombs, 50 cal machine guns. But really the aircraft was built around an 80 cubic foot payload base. So there's three payload bays in the belly. We can carry up to three retractable camera sensors. Primarily we've been flying with the MX-15, which is the 15 inch camera, but we can carry and retract the MX-25, which is the, one of the largest ones made a 25 inch camera sensor. So it's really impressive, the capabilities. The aircraft itself is kind of a, an off-the-shelf, easily integratable, and we can pretty much 
put anything on there and test it very quickly uh, since the mission system is separate from the actual avionics of the aircraft. And uh, when I worked on that aircraft, I was able to uh, help develop and test the mission system and the weapon system, uh, which was really fun because I don't have a military background. So as a civilian, uh, I got to ride along in the back seat to work on the mission system. And I even got to drop a bomb from the back seat out at Pax River at the Navy's test facility. Uh, we got to drop a GBU-58, which was pretty neat. So is this is a jet-powered aircraft, a turbofan? It is. Yep. It's got uh, Honeywell, two Honeywell engines on it, which are widely used in the commercial field. So we tried to keep compatibility with a lot of our business jets that we make already to keep cost down in the simple design. So uh, I forget the exact percentage, but it's somewhere around 70 or 80% compatibility with our other business jets. How many Scorpions were built? So we have four Scorpions. Uh, the first one, uh, we labeled it D1 for the first demonstrator. That was kind of the proof of concept. Then we were able to make some uh, engineering changes to make things better, as we always try to do in flight test. And we have three production units. So we have a P1, a P2, and a P3. And what's the status of the Scorpion program today? Well, we have, oh gosh, a couple hundred flights on all of the test platforms, and we've taken it to air shows all over the world. Currently, we are working with some vendors and, and potentially using the aircraft for some USG programs coming up. Since we can do some pretty easy integration with different mission systems, we've worked with L3 Harris to... Uh, test different systems fairly rapidly on the aircraft. So we have some future projects potentially in work. So let's hear now about perhaps your latest program, the Cessna 408 Sky Courier. Yes. So the, the Sky Courier kind of looks like a big flying brick. It's a twin turboprop engine, PT6s from Pratt & Whitney. We have two variants. The first one can carry 19 people in a passenger variant, or we have a freighter variant that can hold 6,000 pounds of cargo. The primary consideration for this aircraft was for FedEx, which was our launch customer. They wanted to have an aircraft that would fit three of their LD3 shipping containers, kind of their standard size shipping containers. Currently, they'll fly their 737s and 57s all over. And when they come, say, to Wichita, for example, they will unload the big airplanes. Then they hand pack the boxes into a Cessna caravan right now, a 208. This will allow them to basically forklift off those LD3 shipping containers from the big airplanes, stick it on one of these sky carriers and then fly it out to, say, a town in western Kansas. So it cuts down on a lot of their transaction time and, and gets the airplane and the uh, products there a little bit faster. Some of the stats on that airplane, um, it is 19,000 pounds, which makes it fall under the FAA Part 23 regulations. 210 knots, true airspeed. So it's not going fast, but it's taking a lot of stuff. 25,000 feet is the max altitude and it is unpressurized. So pilots are going to be on oxygen up there. So the passenger flights will take place a little bit lower. It's got a range of about 920 nautical miles. Are there military applications for the 408 potentially? We do have some special missions work uh, going on on that aircraft, so uh, stay tuned for some future projects. Now, Sean and I met at last year's Society of Flight Test Engineers Symposium. She gave an excellent presentation about aircraft certification, and at the symposium, Shannon and her team were recognized with the prestigious James S. McDonnell Award for Outstanding Team Achievement in the Field of Flight Test Engineering. So I know you may be too modest to mention that, but I wanted to mention that because that's really hot stuff. 
Well, thank you. I, I'm really fortunate to be a part of a, a really great team of pilots, FTEs, coordinators, even the instrumentation and mechanics just really worked well together. Uh, the whole team was really efficient. And we, we even had to deal with you know, the challenges surrounding the pandemic and, and using the new rule basis for the FAA Part 23. So the FAA recently updated the regulations to Amendment 64, which was essentially a full rewrite of all of the airworthiness requirements for small aircraft. It required an entirely new process to show compliance to the regulations. No one had ever done it before. So part of uh, the reason for our team winning that award was uh, being the first to accomplish a certification project under that new amendment. We really had to piece together guidance from various sources and uh, that definitely added some challenges to what was otherwise a fairly simple Part 23 project. Now, when we think about flight test, we typically think about the first flight of an airplane and envelope expansion, but most flight test is actually a very different. It's about systems upgrades and avionics and if it's military weapons, because very rarely do we actually have a new aircraft. I mean, we've been flying the F-16 for 48 years. Even the F-22 and the F-35 are fairly old aircraft at this point in terms of their first flight dates. You know, we're going to have the B-21 flying this year, but the last time the Air Force flew a new bomber was the B-2 back in 1989. So it's actually rare that we get first flights. You've been involved with a lot more first flights than most people have. And so what I want to talk about today is what people think about as flight tests, but in fact is the exception, which is what happens when you first fly an airplane and how do you expand its envelope? So you can't just as we're going to talk about, jump in an airplane and say, let's go fly and full throttle and jam it ahead and see how high and fast it goes. I mean, I like to think about this all in terms of risk mitigation. These are dangerous things and there's an awful lot of hazards. And so when you're in general in flight tests, you're thinking about mitigating risks, but in first flights and envelopes expansion, you're thinking even more about that. So let's talk about some of the risks of flight test, uh, particularly in this early stage when you're talking about a first flight or expanding the envelope. What are some of the risks and, and how do we deal with each of them? We can't make them go away, but we can minimize them. That's true. Uh, flight test is all about mitigation. Um, I've been very fortunate to work on uh, four clean sheet design aircraft. So basically, these are unproven systems. There's really no guarantee on how everything is going to work together. So you really need to build up to verify that all of the assumptions and models are correct for everything that you do on the ground before you go fly. And really, we're, we're trying to prove that we think we know the answer try to get as much confidence as we can in, in the products before we really push the envelope and, and take these things out to their full capacity and, and even beyond in the world of flight testing. So risk mitigation really starts from the very beginning. A lot of it has to deal with the company culture as well and how much uh, emphasis is put on that safety management system. We're very fortunate here at Textron Aviation where we do have a, a pretty good uh, safety management system in place. So we use test hazard analysis or THAs for every single type of test that we do. We also have a 
first flight and test readiness review. So we have a, a full process that I'm sure I'll share more details about later. But really, we consider everything that could possibly go wrong. We have detailed test plans that are written by flight test. They're reviewed by subject matter experts. And we even have an independent safety officer within our department that can verify everything and make sure we're considering all of the potential things that could possibly go wrong. Some of our first flight test plans, we'll have up to 17 different THAs that we brief before the flight. Uh, considers everything from departing the runway on initial taxi test to what happens if the flight safety equipment doesn't work as expected to even departure from controlled flight. In flight test, we also keep documents, uh, they're called limitations and special instructions. That they'll include some very specific uh, limitations from, say, our aerodynamics and structures teams that tell us, you know, how fast we can go or how slow or what maneuvers we can fly or not fly until we're able to validate some of those models. And then we also have some other mitigations. Uh, first flights, we utilize a real-time telemetry room. So we have a control room where we're receiving signal from the aircraft and all of the data that we're recording, so airspeeds, altitudes, pressures, flight control positions, basically anything you can think of, we're piping down to the ground real time where the engineers get to sit in the room and kind of decipher everything and make sure that everything's falling within what their expectations are. We also use chase airplanes with real-time HD video feeds, which is really nice because we can sit on the ground in the telemetry room and have a fantastic view of the aircraft just to make sure that everything's still on there that we expect. We really utilize a build-up approach for all of our conditions. So everything from airspeed, altitude, handling characteristics, uh, everything we start slow and we kind of build on top of it. Checklist is another big thing. You know, all pilots live and die by their checklist. So we have our checklist on the aircraft as well as in the TM room. We also have a pilot in the TM room for our initial flights so they can kind of speak the right terms if in case the engineers aren't saying the right words. And then we have very specific TM protocol that includes special briefings and even approval lists on the doors of who's allowed to be in that room at any given time. Uh, basically, you know, we don't want any program managers in there putting undue pressure uh, on any of the test teams. And then some of the other uh, final mitigations, uh, we have a lot of safety equipment that we carry. Uh, we always do our, our high-risk testing with minimum crew. The flight crew will carry and wear aircraft parachutes and helmets, five-point harness for the pilot seats. We have the chase aircraft. Uh, we use a system called Arctic Fire, which is uh, installed throughout the cockpit. So if there's an issue, it'll actually spray down the flight crew as they're escaping the airplane to basically let them get out of the airplane without catching on fire. While well, wearing our Nomex suits, there's kind of an added layer of equipment there. And then finally, something that most people don't think about especially when we're testing our business jets, we have a, an egress or a rapid escape hatch uh, for these aircraft. So with the 408 Sky Courier, the pilots each had a door, which was nice because they're able to open the door and, and escape the airplane if they need. But for some of our business jets that don't have those passenger compartment doors, we have a hatch in the bottom of the airplane and there's equipment. It's basically a you know, they'll pull the cord, it'll drop that hatch out of the airplane. There's a called the guillotine that slides out to break the airflow for the pilots and they can basically jump out the bottom of the airplane. So for our jets that don't have ejection seats like the Sky Courier or the AT6, we have another system in place. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. So let's talk about some specific kinds of things we might worry about and how you might mitigate the risks. One of the ones that comes to mind is stability and control. Either the airplane, let's say, doesn't have enough pitch authority, so you're going down the runway and you pull back and you can't get the nose off the ground and all of a sudden you're going real fast and you can't take off. Or the airplane is oversensitive and pilot puts in an input and it's like, whoa, and that could be either in pitch or roll. Or the airplane it turns out to be uh, too, if you will, tail heavy and it tends to pitch up and isn't longitudinally stable. How do you handle these or what do you do to mitigate the risks of stability and control issues? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the primary things that the uh, pilots are going to notice as they take control of this aircraft for the first time. Really, that starts on the ground. Even before they go fly, we have some simulators that we use on the ground, aerodynamic models. So we start with a desktop model, and then we have what's called an Iron Bird. And it's basically a fixed base simulator of the aircraft with all of the flight controls, including any cables and hydraulics, are added into the system. So the pilots are able to fly that to kind of get a feel for what they expect. Of course, testing will help validate those models. So it's kind of a a guess at first. But before the first flight, you know, we have making sure that we're doing all of our flight control inspections. We're checking trim tab, free play, stiffness, make sure that the controls are going to operate exactly how we expect on the ground. And then we start with our build up approach. So we always kind of start slow build up. So we'll start with taxi tests. We'll do slow speed taxi tests and then start to increase the speed on those. And that's when the pilots are kind of moving the stick a little bit or the yoke and getting a feel for how heavy those forces are going to be. Is it going to be okay to rotate? What's the aircraft kind of feel like once it gets some airflow over it? Once we take off, we usually start in the middle of the envelope, both for speed and altitude. And then we'll start kind of moving more towards the edges. So you know, starting slow speed, then going a little bit faster, starting lower altitude, then going a little bit higher, even down to the middle of the envelope for the weight and CG envelope. So we'll start right in the middle and then we kind of do some expansion and test some of the worst case in the forward CG and the aft CG. Also as mitigation though for stability and control, we will fly with an aircraft recovery chute installed. We have very specific altitudes that we brief for, you know, when the pilot needs to recover from a maneuver and when that parachute should be deployed. That parachute is also jettisonable. So once the pilot regains control of the airplane, they can drop that chute and land back safely. Really, it comes down to that build-up approach, sticking with the checklist. We have controllability checks in the checklist in case we do suspect any issues with the flight controls. 
And then after the first flight, we start to get more into the details of the specific types of stability and control maneuvers that we fly. What about propulsion? I think problems that I can think about are either you have an engine failure or you have a fire in the engine or you have fuel flow problems. And you may have an airplane with fuel, but you can't get it to the engine for some reason or another. So how would you mitigate that series of propulsion-related risks? We do build-up tests here, too. So we start on the ground with doing engine runs. The pilots are involved in all the maintenance runs from the, the very first one up until we're ready to go fly. So they're verifying their checklist. They're practicing in-flight shutdowns, restarts, any failures on the ground. And they can also use the simulator, too, to see how the aircraft is going to respond to, say, a single-engine operation in a multi-engine aircraft Anytime that we are doing testing specific for the engines, we do test one side at a time. So that way, if you're bringing both back to idle, you're not running the risk of losing both engines. So we'll start with one and then start to move the throttles together. We also make sure that we have the propulsion folks in the TM room that they can monitor any parameters. So if they start to see fuel flow acting funny or things start operating too hot, they can get the word very quickly to the pilot to keep an eye on that or to take the appropriate action per the checklist. And then once we get into any of the specific propulsion testing where we do have a higher risk of losing an engine, we want to make sure that we're doing those within gliding distance of the airport. So we have our aerodynamics and performance folks have uh, the glide information readily available in TM as well as a mitigation. Let's talk about structures. One of the things that I would think about with structures is just, if you will, static failure where you pull more Gs and the structure can handle. And another thing that I can think of is flutter. What I'm thinking of is people may not be familiar with flutter, but think of a flag where a flag, when it's in the wind, doesn't just push out. It sort of flaps back and forth. And that's because the flexibility of the flag is interacting with the energy of the flow going past. So you have the same thing happen on an aircraft. So how do you mitigate these risks of overstressing the airframe or uh, flutter? I think for first flight specifically, it's all about staying in the middle. So we're staying in the middle of the envelope. We're not trying to go as fast as we can on the first flight because we want to make sure that we have all of that right instrumentation and we're monitoring the right things. So envelope expansion, when we do start looking specifically for some of those flutter characteristics or, or hopefully not any flutter characteristics at the higher speeds, we want to do dedicated tests for those. So for first flight specifically, we do have engineers in the TM room that do monitor. So if the pilot starts doing something that they don't like very much, you know, we'll tell them to knock it off right away. So we can watch G's, we can watch any of the accelerations through the instrumentation on the flight controls. We also make sure that we use standardized wording. So certain words mean certain things. We're briefing that ahead of time. So we know, you know, knock it off is a different than a standby and they have different levels of concern. We also have that recovery chute on the aircraft. So if we do start to see something that we don't like, we can use that aircraft recovery chute to get stable again. How does the weight that you fly at bear on risk? In other words, the airplane obviously can fly at a lightweight or at a heavy weight. How does that bear on structural concerns? I mean, ultimately, we have to certify the aircraft out to its max weight. So we're flying in the middle to begin with just to kind of validate some of those models. But a lot of structural test happens on the ground, both before first flight and then concurrently with the flight test program to make sure that we're meeting all of the structural requirements. So we do step out and start increasing the weight, but that's not as big of a concern as uh, some of the speed or altitude. 
What about systems failures? I'm thinking, for example, the landing gear won't extend. Now, I know that's not an issue on the 408, but it sure is on a Scorpion, let's say. It can be, yes. (laughs) How do you address issues of system failure? So specifically for the landing gear, uh, you may notice if you do catch any news articles or videos of first flights on aircraft, you'll notice a lot of aircraft will actually leave their gear down on the first flight. Basically, the primary purpose is to get the airplane airborne and then land it again. So they don't want to take any risks of something not working or um, having an issue getting back to landing. So kind of one of the big things that we do mitigate that specific concern with is by leaving the landing gear down. We also have the chase aircraft. So if there's something we want to verify with Chase, especially in the outside of the aircraft, they can take a look at it and send us down that video. Other systems failures, it kind of depends on the system. Avionics or electrical issues, per se, we have instrumentation that we carry on board that operates off of its own separate battery. So if the ship system loses power, we still have some of the basic information that we can give to the pilot through separate displays. So they can still see what their altitude and airspeed and some of their critical flight systems are. We also make sure that we operate in VFR conditions until we're comfortable with the airplane. So that way the pilot can always maintain that visual contact with the ground and get back safely. What other things did I forget to mention about that you might worry about? I think your your list was actually pretty comprehensive, you know, going through the, in my memory some of our first flight test plans and these subjects actually kind of follow along really well with the things that we take into account when we're building that first flight test plan and the THAs. Really, people don't think about it as much, but conducting a first flight really is a team effort. And that includes all of flight tests, all of the engineering teams, everybody that's conducting ground testing, design work on the aircraft, helping monitor in the TM room. Of course, our ground crew and instrumentation, our TM room operator. So everybody really has to work together as a team, which can also include its own risks. One of the issues, like I mentioned with Sky Courier, is we were trying to do this during the pandemic. So we had to operate in three separate TM rooms across two campuses on either side of town of Wichita to maintain our social distancing. We were limited on how many people we could have. So now we have to consider risks such as communication issues or making sure people are following along on the test card correctly um, and not having some of those visual cues from people that we may look for. So we had our own mitigations that we had to consider for that. But really, if you're doing it right, First flights are really boring, and boring is good. And in aviation in general, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So we really just take things one step at a time to make sure that we're getting through everything that we need to in a really smooth way. You know, that's interesting because if you look at why experimental aircraft crash, it actually isn't on their first flights and it isn't doing the really hazardous stuff. It's often in things like air shows that turn out to be the most hazardous things. That is true. And sometimes you can get into a test program and you start to let your guard down a little bit. With first flights, everybody is very hypervigilant. You're briefing everything. It's all at the forefront of your mind. You're almost expecting to see an issue. And I think when you stop expecting that is when things can happen. When you maybe start getting more comfortable with the airplane and deciding that you don't need telemetry or you don't need that extra set of eyes, that you can sometimes start to get yourself in trouble. So we do consider that throughout the rest of the test program. Some of the testing that we're doing, 
course, every flight test has a test hazard analysis. And sometimes we just have to stop and think back to ourselves, okay, we're still flying experimental airplanes. And while we may be more comfortable with this, we still don't really know exactly how it's going to perform. So let's think about an example of a program. And I don't know whether you want to think of a specific aircraft or just kind of generally across your experience, but we develop an aircraft and we're eventually going towards its first flight. But how does the flight test team get engaged? Because we don't want you to start to get engaged when the airplane arrives on the ramp. I mean, we want to have you all involved earlier so you understand what the airplanes are out. So how does the flight test team get engaged early in the process? Yeah, thankfully, I don't have to think of a specific program because this is generally what happens on almost every program, or at least all the ones that I've been involved with. I've done four clean sheet aircraft programs over the past 18 years as a flight test engineer. So I've been really fortunate to kind of see what that process is and the similarities across the companies. Flight test in general, I think, is just a really good job at sharing some of those lessons learned so that we maintain that safety. Everyone kind of looks out for each other. So we're able to use those lessons learned program to program, company to company to make it as safe as possible. But really, I mean, when you start thinking about a first flight, it's all about getting involved early. So you Usually the flight test team is established well before the airplane's ready to fly. So we're getting the flight crews involved in the design process and, and doing integrated engineering team meetings every week where we're talking about design decisions and the pilots get to have their input for how an end user is going to do it or if they think something's going to be safe or more efficient, they can kind of put their opinion in there. But we do start many, many months ahead of time. So eventually you have to build the first airplane and that's either done on a production line or in an experimental shop. And at some point, the aircraft gets turned over to flight test. It's no longer manufacturing's airplane. Now it's flight test airplane. What is that point and what happens at that point? So generally, the we have a specific experimental group that will build the airplanes. So these are planes that don't necessarily have production drawings ready to go. They may use an experimental drawing system. So they at least are able to electronically design the airplane. We have that written record, but it's not quite ready for their production line yet because you don't know exactly how things are going to fit or not fit and what's going to work. So we do have a special experimental group that is very versed in these experimental aircraft. So they will generally build the initial prototype airplane and we'll start training the manufacturing team as we start building more of those other test articles. So they're kind of getting trained up on the subsequent builds. Textron Aviation specifically uses an integrated database for controlling the aircraft configuration. So we have things that monitor any experimental parts that get put on the airplane. It monitors test conditions that have been completed, squawks on the airplanes, inspections that have to be done by the quality assurance team. And that integrated database tracks everything about a single airplane through the entire process. So once the aircraft are built, they will have functional tests done that engineering gets to help out to make sure that their systems are working properly. Once it gets kind of to that final stage where everyone's convinced things are working properly, There's a special inspection that's done by subject matter experts from each individual engineering discipline. And these are people that come in that are outside of the team that actually designed the airplane. 
So they may pull a propulsion engineer that works on one of our other jets to come in and make sure that things look right, that there's no wires binding or that the flight controls are attached properly. There's no concerns there. And then the flight crew can categorize the squawks that are found during that special inspection and determine what has to be fixed before the flight, what just needs to be fixed as soon as practical, or things that may be information only or don't require an action before first flight. So once it gets through kind of that process, the test pilot will conduct some of those initial engine runs and start some of the taxi tests. And that also gives the FTEs a chance to check out all of the processes and the instrumentation, just kind of a practice run, if you will. So you know, as we transition from manufacturing to flight test, we're building on the experiences with the aircraft. Let's talk about that instrumentation because that's so critical to both safety and to getting the data needed to test the aircraft. The aircraft has to be instrumented with transducers, with things that measure acceleration or strain or temperature or pressure. And then all that data has to be collected on a system, which either records it on board or telemers it off board. And then you need to have miles of orange wire that connect everything together. And that's not part of the basic airplane. That's in addition to the airplane. It's test specific. So how does the airplane get instrumented in this process prior to the first flight? Yeah, I think specifically our instrumentation guys are really the unsung heroes of our test programs. They start along with the design engineers right from the beginning they're thinking about where they can install their wiring and they will install especially their wing wiring while the airplane's still being built. So you may have a wing that doesn't have its skin completely on, but you see that orange wire go out to the wingtip for potential cameras or those accelerometers or getting ready for future tests. So we have monitor uh, hundreds and even up to you know over a thousand parameters on a test aircraft at any time. Their instrumentation guys, especially, are really, really proactive in guessing what we're going to need. So most of our programs, you know, go through pretty much the same process. And they're like, well, last time we needed this extra parameter. So we're going to go ahead and get ready for that. We also usually have three test articles. So our first aircraft is usually a prototype airplane, and that uh, is primarily used for handling qualities and performance. That one's going to have the most instrumentation on it and most of our safety equipment as well. So that has miles and miles and miles of orange in there. Our second aircraft, P-1, is usually what it's called for the first production unit, is generally used for some systems testing, icing, and then kind of as a backup for the handling qualities and performance. So that'll have the second most amount of instrumentation where we have the basic stuff with the aircraft attitude, um, airspeeds, altitudes, kind of general performance type of data systems. And then we have P2, which is generally our third airplane that is usually has more of a production interior. Those airplanes are usually used for avionics, interior testing, human factors, those things where you have that final aircraft put together. And uh, sometimes we have to have some instrumentation on there. So our guys will kind of put together a suitcase instrumentation system, as they call it, where it's a carry-on system that can be put in temporarily, where it can monitor things like temperatures or pressures inside of the airplane that the instrumentation does not have to be installed necessarily during the build process, like with the P1 and P2. 
And then finally, we have cameras all over the airplane, which is really nice. We have them that record the flight displays, that record what the pilots are doing. So we can see when they flip a switch and we can look at it post-test to say, hey, here's where you hit the wrong switch or, hey, you hit this switch and this happened. We can also watch things external so they can mount them inside the airplane or outside to watch any specific area of the airplane that we want to see. I think another thing about instrumentation, particularly in this day and age, is that the aircraft have avionics systems and you can record the data from them. And that's a huge amount of information. So you don't have to have a system that measures what's the pitch angle, the roll angle, the airspeed, the latitude and longitude. You just tap that off the avionics system. Yeah, that is true. They do uh, tap pretty much <laughs> every parameter that they can off of that. And sometimes, you know, we need to validate some of those avionics. So we can do that by using an external instrumentation system as well, just to verify, hey, altitude's going to be correct or your airspeed's correct, or we have to apply specific correction factors when you're doing your calibrations. But I, I totally agree with you that the instrumentation engineers and the instrumentation technicians are some of the real heroes of flight tests. I mean, you think about the pilots and you think about the flight test engineers, but if you're actually involved in it, you realize that it's often the instrumentation people who are really driving the show. Because if you don't collect the data, what's the point of doing the flight test? Exactly. And there, you know, we have had to abort flights before for instrumentation issues. And thankfully, not very many. That's actually one of our lowest risk items. But those guys are right there ready to support. They travel off site with us. They know these airplanes inside and out. So we've been really, really lucky with our instrumentation folks. It can be really challenging because sometimes these uh, transducers, these things that measure things have to be put into all sorts of weird places and they can't interfere with the actual aircraft systems. And it's very complex. Yeah, we actually have specific instrumentation engineers that will design exactly where these go, where all the parts and pieces go, and they do work with the design engineers for the entire aircraft to make sure that the design engineers are getting the things measured that they need and that it is not interfering with their system. So in terms of planning for this first flight, so now we have our test aircraft and it's instrumented and we've done all kinds of ground tests run up the engines and run the electric system and the hydraulic system. And we actually want to fly the airplane. And you've talked about readiness reviews and test hazard analysis, THAs and things like that. So what's the full package of planning and preparation before this first flight? Well, like I said, you know, the flight test gets involved months before we're ready for our first flight. The flight test engineers start preparing a test plan. Thankfully, we keep those fairly standard across different platforms, and then we can modify them as needed for specific airframes that we're testing. Flight test is involved in design, so we're learning really early on how the systems are supposed to work so that we can write into the test plan, you know, how we think they operate and what expected results we have from those. The pilots will create the checklists and the manuals based on the system knowledge that they get from working with the engineers. We also have flight crew will run through the test plan in the simulator if we have one available. They may practice on other aircraft. So if we have a similar jet, say in the Citation series, they may go with the latest Citation jet that has been flying and practice just going through the maneuvers, practice using a chase aircraft, keeping the currency for the pilots. And then we have the special inspections by the subject matter experts outside of the design team. And then we have the QA shakeout. So once all of that is done, then we get ready to really go into the testing phase of it where we do have a first flight readiness review. Uh, We have a checklist of 
all of the systems of the aircraft and it gives the opportunity for the design engineers to brief anything that may be different from a production airplane. With our first prototype airplanes, usually, you know, we have to make modifications if something didn't work the way we expected during installation or during functional tests. Now's the time where the engineers get to brief the pilots on some of those nuances or limitations that they may have. Then we have an actual physical form that gets signed off by all of the team members to show that, hey, they agree that the airplane's ready to go. And then we start getting into our actual briefings and then the ground testing and flight testing. Now, an airplane may be ready to go physically, and the team may be ready to go, but you need some kind of paperwork from the FAA or the military or whoever to say, yep, this is really an aircraft and it's ready to go. So what do you need and how do you get it and what hoops do you have to go through to get that paperwork? All of the hoops. <laughs> paperwork is the foundation of the airplane. And uh, I think the joke is that an airplane can be certified when the weight of the paperwork matches the weight of the aircraft. So yeah, that starts early in the process as well. We do have to operate with an experimental license for our experimental aircraft. So they're not standard aircraft uh, configurations. We do have a list of operating limitations, which does call out uh, our company-specific experimental operating procedures. These are prearranged procedures between the company and the FAA. Textron Aviation is an organizational designation authority, which means that we have certain agreements in place with the FAA to kind of act on their behalf for certain processes. So we have that agreement, which makes some of the paperwork a little bit easier. We also work with our local MIDO, FISDO, ACO, all of the FAA acronyms. We have to prove the aircraft configuration, all of our maintenance tracking, our quality assurance process. And then finally, we have the limitations in place that we have to adhere by. So we're prohibited from flight over populated areas. We have limits on where we can fly, what runways we can use for takeoff or landing. And then finally, the FAA will come and do their own special inspection prior to licensing the aircraft to get ready to fly. Now, let me see if I can get the alphabet soup right here. Mido is a manufacturing inspection district office. I'm going to have to take your word for it because I don't remember exactly what the M stands for. <laughs> and I think that's the FAA office that says that the aircraft are being produced according to the production certificate. And then you have a FISDO, you said, or an FSDO, which is a flight standard district office. And they have to do with aircraft operations. And then you have the ACO or the Aircraft Certification Office, and they're the people who give the aircraft a type certificate. Correct. And uh, we have to comply with the airworthiness standards through that certification office. Right. That's for civilian aircraft. If it was military aircraft, you would have similar type functions, only you'd be going through a program office. Right. As well as the Military Certification Office or MCO. One of the advantages that we have here at Textron Aviation is we are a civilian contractor. So the products that we make for the military, the T-6, the AT-6, and our Scorpion jet, for the local flight testing that we do, we actually do that through the FAA processes as experimental aircraft, unless we're working on a specific military project, in which case then we have to work with the program office and we get a military flight release to conduct that specific testing for military purposes. 
I think that's a little different than, for example, what Lockheed Martin would do with the F-35. I think there they don't coordinate with the FAA except for things like airspace. I think that they go exclusively through the program office. But even though it's a different set of bureaucracies, I think that the actual steps are very similar. Yes, that is true. Uh, based on my experience from the military flight releases that we've gotten, our company produces aircraft, especially our military style airplanes that may not be for a specific military program. So we have a little bit more flexibility than say a Lockheed Martin doing an F-35 where they're developing that in conjunction with the Air Force and Navy and various agencies. So we're coming up on the first flight here, and you had mentioned earlier that the primary objective of the first flight is to get the airplane off the ground and then get it safely on the ground in one piece. The primary objective is to land. <laughs> of course, we're, we're trying to check out some other things while we're doing that, starting with the taxi test, like mentioned before, just trying to get a feel for the airplane, see how it's going to do rolling under its own power and getting some airflow over the wing. We'll also test on the ground that recovery parachute deployment. We want to make sure that it's going to work and that it's going to jettison. So that's the very last taxi test that we do where we'll roll down the runway, the pilots will pull the handle, and you'll see the chute pop out the back. And then uh, once we're happy with that, we repack the chutes and ready to go fly. So really, it's the initial look at the airplane. So generally, for a first flight, we take off. We'll keep the flaps in the current position to make sure that the airplane can safely be operated and land again, even right away if needed. So they'll do some initial flight control checks, some trim evaluations, some really initial handling quality assessments at a couple different speeds. And then the pilots will actually do a simulated go around while airborne. And again, that's just making sure that they can get a feel for coming in on an approach and kind of land and that they know they're going to have that extra power if they need it when they're coming in for a real landing. Then we look at moving the flaps, preferably to the up position. We may repeat some of the handling characteristics, different air speeds and, and different flap settings. Then we do kind of just a few system checks. So we may check some of the environmental system or pressurization if an aircraft has that. And then probably the most important part of the first flight, if you ask the right people, is that photo op for marketing. So that may be done during the takeoff role, but we also have a chase aircraft that will usually have a photographer on board. So they're getting those pretty glamour shots and may do a flyby on the ground to get some of those unique ground shots. And then we come in for a landing. Well, now when you land an airplane, what you're trying to do is to have it stop flying just about when it touches the ground. But stop flying means that you're at a higher angle of attack and that's a little bit of a riskier situation. So do you practice landing at high altitude or medium altitude, you know, well above the ground before you actually bring it in the land? Yeah, it gives the pilots kind of a feel for what power settings are going to be required for certain descent rates. They've practiced this in the simulator before the first flight as well. So they kind of have a general idea and then they get to practice it one time airborne before they do it on the ground in front of the large audience that is always waiting for them when they come back. What are the weather constraints for a first flight? Ceiling, visibility, crossed winds, gusty winds, things like that. Yeah, we keep it pretty safe and clear for first flights. So any of our high-risk testing, generally we want to make sure we have VFR conditions. If there are clouds, we want to make sure that we're staying away from them and or under them. 
crosswind limits, we do have specific tighter limits on first flights that we would subsequent flights, generally looking at no more than like a 10 or 15 knot crosswind. We also have certain, you know, depending on the style airplane, different total wind limits as well. Um, because we have restrictions on flying over those populated areas and what runways we're allowed to take off on, sometimes that may change the first flight date. If we have prevailing winds out of a certain direction, that doesn't align with the runway that we have to use. So we do keep a very close eye on the weather as those first flights approach. What about runway length? If you calculate that the airplane needs X distance to take off or Y distance to land, how long does the runway have to be? I mean, that's always a consideration. Here in Wichita, Textron Aviation actually has two campuses, one on the west side of town based at Eisenhower Airport. We're pretty lucky there with larger runways that can accommodate pretty much all of our jets. On the east side of town, which is where our Sky Courier aircraft was built, we operate off of Beach Field, which is our own private airstrip that's about 8,000 feet so far, everything that we've worked on, that's been sufficient, but we do have to take that into consideration where we're building the airplane and what the performance is going to be. When we first built the Scorpion jet, we actually have an agreement with McConnell Air Force Base, and we have a, a facility just off of the base where we built the aircraft, we tow it onto the base, and we're able to use the really long runways at McConnell Air Force Base to do those initial flights on the Scorpion. What about chase aircraft? What do you use to chase? We're really lucky being at Textron that we have a lot of resources that we can use. So we try to match performance the best we can with a Sky Courier. King Air, I think, was used on that one. Some of our jets, we kind of get the closest match jet that we have. But we do use the chase aircraft, at least for the first couple flights and for any high-risk flights, so other dedicated envelope expansion tests. And the chase aircraft can really verify the outside configuration of the airplane. They can record and feedback some of the observations that they're seeing if something doesn't look right or if they're seeing the airplane perform in a weird way. But it also gives the air crew an opportunity to verify their airspeed and altitude while they're flying if they need to check any of their instruments. So you've landed the airplane after the first flight and the pictures, the corporation puts up the pictures on Twitter and on Facebook and you get in the magazines and all that. And presumably you're going to do some kinds of inspections and data analysis before a second flight. So while the communications team is doing their wonders, what is the engineering team doing? Well, we're, we're debriefing with the flight crew. So uh, after the cameras have taken all of their pictures, we will go debrief with just the pilots and the engineering team. Pilots can give some of their initial feedback. We do conduct a post-flight inspection. So all of our mechanics will climb all over the airplane and check and make sure that everything still looks good. It gives them also a time to work any squawks that the pilots may have. So if something didn't quite feel right or if they need to repair something before the next flight, they may do that. And then that may require some additional ground checks. Thankfully, knock on wood, haven't had too many issues that have delayed a second flight on an aircraft. So we've been pretty fortunate, but I think a lot of that has to do with all the, the extra work that we do ahead of time with those inspections and the buildup approach and our safety mitigation. So we really make sure that when we're ready for a first flight, we're ready to conduct actual testing and get moving on with the flight test process. 
Okay, so we're now thinking about a second and subsequent flight. And we want to, as we say, expand the envelope. So there are a couple different ways we can do that. We didn't want to go too fast because we run into structural and potentially control issues if we went too fast. So we took kind of a means. We don't want to go too slow because you can get into high angle of attack and some controllability issues at low speed. So we need to expand the speed envelope. We need to expand the altitude envelope. We need to look at loads, pulling more Gs and perhaps negative Gs. We need to increase the weight of the airplane and we need to move the CG forward and aft because we kind of flew right in the middle. We need to get up to high angle of attack. We're concerned with uh, flutter, particularly at high speeds. We have to deal with uh, higher and higher crosswinds because an airplane that can't handle crosswinds isn't very practical. Now, that's an awful lot of things that have to be expanded. What order do we do these in? Well, you know, we, we kind of start small. So the first things that we're going to do on a first flight, we're really staying in the middle of the envelope for airspeed, but we're also cognizant with how the aircraft handles. So after first flight, we kind of get towards the edges of our min and max speeds. So we generally will do that first, and then we'll look at different altitudes and then different CGs. Most of the other stuff kind of comes after that when we have a basic safe operating envelope for the aircraft. Really, envelope expansion generally refers to taking the airplane to places it hasn't been before. You listed a lot of the various pieces of testing and areas of an envelope that the aircraft does have to expand. So it could be altitude, airspeed, performance, loads. With our military aircraft, we also have to consider the external stores carriage and any weapons releases. So adds an extra layer on top of the other envelope expansion. So generally, we'll look to expand some of those speeds first, and then altitude usually has a little bit lower impact on things. And then once we're comfortable with the general aircraft envelope and have an area to work in, then we'll get into our specific high-end airspeed envelope expansion, including our flutter testing. Now, let's say that we're doing this envelope expansion testing, and we find some problem or another. And we have to change the airplane in some way. We have to put vortex generators on some of the surfaces, or maybe we need to change the shape of the tail slightly, or we need to change the flight control system so it handles better in a certain thing. Do we have to go back and do the testing that we've already done to see how it works with the new system, or can we just keep going on? If it's something that's going to affect a previous test that was done, we will go back and verify. Generally, we find a lot of those things when we're trying to do stall testing and making sure that stalls are compliant with the FAA or military regulations. So things like vortex generators or stall strips or any of the other, I call them kind of black magic pieces that could get added to an airplane to change the stall characteristics. So depending on where we are within the stall testing, we'll go back and spot check places that we've already tested to make sure that it's either better or was not affected by any of those changes. The same really goes for other testing as well. So if we find out that we have to tweak something on the tail, we may go back and do some longitudinal testing to verify that that wasn't impacted or that it, it handles better. We may also touch some pieces of other types of testing, maybe lateral or directional testing to make sure that there's no effect. So there is always the risk of having to repeat some of the conditions. Well, this has been really interesting. Do you have any good stories 
from your experiences with first flights and with envelope expansion? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the first flights and envelope expansion are some of the highest risk testing that we can do. So we try to take things very, very slowly. I've been really fortunate, like I mentioned, to have a lot of these experiences. And and I've been part of five different programs with a total of 10 first flight of experimental aircraft, uh, four of those being clean sheets. So there's always things that pop up or can happen that you don't always expect. I think one of my early memories from envelope expansion testing, particularly flutter testing, and with flutter testing specifically, you're trying to induce a frequency into a flight control to make sure that it's going to dampen and not exacerbate any issues or have a divergent characteristic. So you're watching the wingtips kind of bounce back and forth a little bit, either from a manual input from a pilot or from an external flutter exciter vein that'll get added to the wingtip and and gets run at different frequencies. So I remember early on chasing an Eclipse 500 during flutter testing from the backseat of an L-39 and just remembering how eerie it was to watch the wing kind of bounce back and forth. And thankfully it damped and everything was good, but that's not something that you normally get to see an airplane do. So some of this testing can really be on the edge of things. As far as first flights, you know, with the P1 of our Scorpion, we flew that in December of 2016, and I was lucky enough to be the telemetry test director for that test, so working in the room with all of the engineers. And I did make sure that I channeled my inner Gene Krantz with my Christmas vest that I promptly brought out right at the beginning of the first flight and then put on while standing in the telemetry room. I got a few weird looks, but a few folks appreciated it. So (laughs) sometimes you got to keep it a little bit fun. My envelope expansion story is we were testing the V-22 Osprey, and this must have been around 1990 or 91 or something like that. And the aircraft was in helicopter mode, so the nacelles were vertical. And we put the aircraft in a side slip. Now, if you can visualize, the air is coming you know, through the rotors on both sides. And as you put a side slip, in it, then the rotor wash starts to, if you will, blow to one side as you put a side slip in. And what happened is that as we kept putting in a bigger and bigger side slip, the aircraft all of a sudden dramatically pitched up. And the reason was, is because that rotor wash all of a sudden started impinging on the vertical stabilizer. It wasn't gradual. It was all of a sudden because you put in a side slip and it's okay. And you put in a little more side slip and it's okay. And you put in a little more side slip and all of a sudden that rotor wash was impinging on the horizontal stabilizer and the aircraft dramatically pitched up. That was pretty exciting. Yeah, we we sometimes run into weird phenomenon like that. We don't necessarily see in a simulator and, and that's part of the reason why we do flight testing, right? And you just have to watch because I think some of the test pilots may have a propensity to say, well, that was weird. Let me try that again. <laughs> you can really get yourself into trouble. So it's using some of that engineering judgment to know when you say, no, let's stop and take a look at some of the data versus trying to see if you can go out and duplicate it right away. Well, that actually brings up a really good point about the limits of a simulator. People think that simulators are magic, but they're not magic. All they do is they're running a math model of how you think the aircraft flies. But if your math model isn't accurate because you haven't included something, then your simulator is going to give you a bad result. So flight test needs to validate the simulator. 
Yeah, we do actually have specific test plans where we go out and we do specific model validation. The pilots will fly very specific maneuvers so that the engineers can use that information, the data to match up exactly how the aircraft is performing or how some of the control inputs may affect the flying characteristics of the airplane. And then we also have a partner with True Simulation that makes a lot of the simulators for training our customer pilots that buy our products and go through the training to fly them later on. So we do a lot of simulator work and the amount of data that they collect and this very specific details that they try to get the pilots to do is pretty intense. Uh, We spend quite a bit of time doing that and you usually get about a 98% solution and you just always have to watch for that extra 2% where it starts to perform not exactly how you would expect the airplane to. Another envelope expansion story I have was dropping experimental cruise missiles off of the B-52. You don't think of that as envelope expansion, but it is envelope expansion. You talked about store separation. And we were very careful with that, with doing a bu- the same buildup approach, starting in a benign, low dynamic pressure environment and then working our way up. Because if you didn't do that, the missile could separate off the airplane and then come back and hit something on the airplane. And that'd be a real bummer. Yeah, that that would ruin your day. (laughs) That could definitely ruin your day. So you would drop a missile in a benign part of the envelope, a low dynamic pressure, and you would make sure that you had very high-speed cameras on it, that you were uh, tracking its trajectory relative to the airplane. And my job as a flight test engineer was to push the button on those cameras at just the right time because they were such high speed that they only had a few seconds of film. This is back when it was film, not digital. And then after the flight, you would compare the actual separation trajectory with what you had planned to make sure that it was safe. And you would build up in that way, just as you would build up airspeed or altitude or anything else. Yeah. And you definitely don't want to be that guy that hit the camera at the wrong time to cause the repeat of the test a little bit later. (laughs) Uh, No, no, you would, uh, you would definitely become well-known in ways that you don't want to become (laughs) well-known. You talk about the um, dynamic pressure and how much that affects things. During specific flutter testing, we do very much take that into consideration. So we'll start at some of the lower altitudes and conduct our testing out to our dive speeds that we need to verify. And then we'll go up to high altitude and collect some of maybe the mock numbers that we need to get out to. And then we kind of come down and one of the last things that we do is kind of that high cue right at the knee of our envelope between mock and airspeed. So again, a build-up approach to make sure that we are kind of stepping through things and doing the the less worst cases before we get into the more risky stuff. For our listeners who are not familiar with the concept of dynamic pressure, which is also called Q, dynamic pressure is the pressure of the air as the aircraft moves through it. So it's a function of the density of the air the lower you are, the higher the dynamic pressure is going to be because the density is higher and the velocity squared. So if you're going at very high speed at low altitude, you're going to have the highest dynamic pressure. And as you go higher and slower, your dynamic pressure decreases. That's a key parameter when you're thinking about things like envelope expansion. So any closing thoughts about this subject? 
Well, I think, you know, we talked a lot about how the importance of kind of building up and taking things slow really is a, a team effort, though, with very clearly defined roles from everybody within flight tests. You know, we talked about the engineers and the pilots and the FTEs and instrumentation folks, and it really takes everybody to do that work safely. And we make sure that we have a plan of action that considers input from all of those team members. Everybody has a slightly different experience, but really we want to take things slow. We want to be as practical as we can. We want to mitigate all of those risks um, so that nothing happens. And knock on wood, we've been able to conduct pretty safe first flight and envelope expansion testing. Well, what's the story behind your call sign, Bam Bam? Got to hear that. Yeah, so apparently I have a propensity to break things. It started when I, I dropped a data brick off of the side rail of an AT6 on the ground. And then uh, before I knew it, one of our ground guys had started a Bam Bam bucket that uh, slowly got filled with broken parts that I may or may not have something to do with. In fact, just the other night, my husband at home reminded me that I'm like a bull in a china shop. So it's not just limited to uh, work things, but... Uh, I'm a little bit klutzy, so Bam Bam is the uh, sound of objects hitting the ground. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great uh, call sign, great story. Well, Bam, thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with us. That was fascinating. Well, thank you for letting me share some of those experiences. I mean, the whole goal is really to make the aviation community safer. So hopefully I was able to share some information that uh, others find interesting. All right, Ken, that was a lot of fun, just as we said before, and Shannon Lunsford was, as you said, a great guest. Big thanks to her and her company for having her come on the show and and talk about the things they're doing. I enjoyed it. So I wrote down a couple questions. I hope you can help me understand. One is, the two of you spent some time talking about Orange Wire, which was new to me, but I love how in our industry, right, we always have these little quips of things that make sense to us and and they have these short names. So Orange Wire sounds like is inside some of these early prototypes, but doesn't that in of itself, the wire, the cameras, all these different things, doesn't that change the vehicle you're testing? I mean, those aren't weight-free. No, that's a great question. First of all, when we say orange wire, that implies instrumentation wiring. So the convention is that the production wiring of the aircraft is whatever color it is, and then the instrumentation boxes and the wiring that goes with it are painted orange, so you can easily distinguish between the production stuff and the test-unique instrumentation. In fact, it does add weight. But on the other hand, prototype aircraft don't have interiors, they don't have armament loads. So, you know, you sort of gain and lose at the same time. But the real point is it doesn't matter. We have equations that we use to compensate for the weight. So depending on, you know, the airplane will have various weight, not only the addition of perhaps test equipment, the subtraction of, let's say, an interior, if it's a a transport type aircraft, But the aircraft is going to have different fuel loads over the course of its flight. And we can correct for all that with some known equations. The important thing, though, is that we have to track the weight. Because if we don't know what the weight is, then the test is useless. Well, what I really love from this, and I knew this already, but I think for people who maybe watch, for example, The Right Stuff, Chuck Yeager asks his buddy for a piece of gum and he goes, hey, I I see an airplane. I'm just going to go fly it, right? I think it was like NF-106 or something, or NF-104 rather. It's so deliberate. I mean, months in advance, of course, right? This, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot of money. There's lives. It's not just give me a piece of gum. I'm going to go jump in the airplane and go figure out what it'll do. 
we've got very specific test parameters. We have certain weather conditions, certain places that we can or cannot fly. We're going to talk about it. We're going to test it in the simulator. We're going to do a high-speed taxi. We're going to fly and leave our landing gear down. I mean, of course, in real life, it's very structured, very deliberate. Take as much risk out as possible. And I just thought the two of you covered that really well. That's the whole point is to mitigate risk. I mean, this is an inherently very dangerous thing. And in fact, it's not that dangerous. And that's because we've learned how to mitigate risk. And I would say the same thing about my airline capacity. We still have folks once in a while who get on and they say how nervous they are. And part of the reason we have such strict procedures and the way we do things on the flight deck and underneath and air traffic control is for that repetitiveness and it's been risk mitigated. And if we do it enough times and we do it the right way, the net result is a safe trip. So that's uh, what you guys try to do as well. And no different in the operational world. If you think about things like um, BFM or, or low altitude flying or uh, landing on a carrier, I mean, those are incredibly dangerous things. Nonetheless, we've actually made them fairly safe over the years by understanding what are the root causes of problems and mitigating risk and having a lot of discipline to follow the rules. So you talked about high-speed cameras. Is that why some of these early aircraft or weapons will have those weird stickers? Or I don't know if they're stickers. I assume they are, but maybe they're painted on. But those little circles, almost like a BMW symbol, and then you can very finely measure distances maybe on the film afterwards? Well, that might be one reason. In some cases, you just want to have a reference point on the airplane because you want to know, let's say you're tracking an airplane optically, and you want to know exactly where it is. Well, an airplane is an object that might be, I don't know, 50 feet long. And so when you say, well, the airplane's right there, well, which part of the airplane's right there? So if you have a specific point that you're tracking, then you know that exactly what you're talking about when you give the location of the airplane. So that's typically for ground instrumentation, but you would also sometimes have high-speed cameras if you're looking at, for example, store separation. You want to see how the weapon separates from the aircraft because that's pretty intricate aerodynamics there. So you want to have a high-speed camera that records that. Now, Ken, one thing I was hoping the two of you would discuss, but I get to ask you afterwards anyway, is on some prototypes, and I'm thinking, I remember seeing this, I think, on the F-16 and a few others, they will sometimes have a very long extension on the nose of the aircraft, almost like an oversized pitot tube. Is that, I presume, specific for testing? And what's it called? What does it do? It's called YAPS. And YAPS stands for, Y is for yaw, which means side slip. A is for angle of attack. P is for pitot. And S is for static. So it's YAPS. And the reason why you put an angle of attack vein, a side slip vein, and a pitot and a static on a long boom in front of the airplane is with the production sensors, you have to calibrate them very carefully and locate them very carefully because you get interference between the flow over the airframe means that what the sensors are picking up is not necessarily the free stream condition. And that calibration takes a lot of time to do, and, and it's a very exacting thing. Well, you want to know what those things are before you calibrate them. So if you stick them on a boom that sticks out in front of the airplane, then you basically are not getting airframe interference. And you can measure angle of attack, side slip angle, pitot and static pressure, which is to say your altitude and your airspeed with a high degree of precision without requiring a lot of calibration. So I have to ask this, Ken, pardon me, but it goes back to my question about the orange wire. But the very fact that you have this long probe on the front of the airplane, doesn't that change? I, I, this isn't my specialty, so forgive me, but you're putting it out in the free stream ahead of the aircraft, but doesn't having the yaps on the aircraft change the rest of what the air is doing around it? Or is it small enough that it's not? No, sometimes it does, particularly I, I think at supersonic speeds, it would. 
And it's possible that you wouldn't have that supersonic speed. So that's primarily for low speed measurements where it wouldn't have that much of an effect. And you need that in the early stage to get flying. Then you start calibrating stuff. The YAPS probe would primarily be used at low speed. If you want to go at high speed, there are other ways of calibrating the air data sensors. For example, you can compare what the sensors are telling you with GPS, and you can fly in various patterns so you neutralize out the effects of wind. You can use what's called a pacer aircraft. That's an airplane that you're flying in formation with that has a highly calibrated system, and then you compare what your sensors are saying with what the pacer airplane is reading out. So there are a lot of ways of doing pitot-static calibration. I remember when we were kids, we'd goof with our cars, whether changing the wheel size or just whatever, and we would drive next to somebody else and try to get them to like tell you what speed you were going to see if, in fact, your speedometer was correct. That's been mostly fixed these days with technology. But you know, when you were goofing with 60s and 70s muscle cars, you'd try to get it just right. So, All right, good. Well, again, really enjoyed the conversation between you and Shannon. Anything else that you had on that discussion? Yeah, well, you know, when you think about flight testing, you think of the first flight of an airplane. That's the most obvious flight test. But but there are actually very few test pilots and test engineers in today's world who have had a genuine first flight or been involved with a first flight because there are not that many new kinds of airplanes. You know, back in the 1950s, a new kind of fighter was coming out a couple every year. Now we get the F-35 and, you know, that's the first one in 20 years and it will be 20 years before we get what follows it. So... New aircraft don't come along very often, yet Bam Bam has had a pretty remarkable career in dealing with first flights and early envelope expansion of new aircraft. She was uh, quite a catch to get on our podcast and explain how this is actually done. And very well-spoken and knowledgeable. And I just, it's always fun, the people you find, Ken. And again, that's what's great about having a show with a very particular niche, like the Fighter Pilot Podcast, is we can delve into these subjects. Is everyone going to find them fascinating? No. And that's fine. You know, we're not Oprah Winfrey or Ellen. We're the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So this is what we're talking about. And hopefully those who do enjoy these subjects will find us and listen and we'll move on to the next one. So on that note, what else are you working on, Ken? Well, I'm working on a few other episodes for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, one of which is my first foray into video since, you know, you've made the strategic choice to delve into video and I wanted to explore that. So that's a little bit of a stretch for me. I've done some work on that and now I need to work with the Fighter Pilot Podcast team to see if we can turn that into something that's going to meet the high standards of Fighter Pilot <laughs> Podcast. But I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I think we've got some interesting stuff there, particularly when the pros apply their magic to it. Yeah. Well, I've heard they have received it and looked at it. I've not heard anything more than that. So these things, as I tried to intimate earlier, take a lot of time. It's usually no less than a month between when we record something and when it airs, if there's video involved. So it's not as quick as it used to be, but that's what's fun about these audio shows. And I would encourage you to keep finding guests that if we can paint a verbal picture of something, keep doing it because if I don't have a video releasing, then I happily upload these to our podcast listeners. And again, they seem to enjoy it for the most part. Great. Well, I think that's about it, Ken. Gosh, I don't know what else there is uh, to cover or discuss, but I think the schedule is a little more fluid than it ever used to be before. Our numbered episodes, we try to shoot for Fridays and we just get them out whenever we can. But we've got some other topics we're working on. We've got an episode coming up on humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, which I think will be fun. We've got the CEO of the San Diego Air and Space Museum who talks about some of the different aircraft they have on display, including the F-14 they loaned to Paramount to film Top Gun Maverick. So we're working on all kinds of fun stuff here, and we're going to keep that going. 
Well, that's great. It was nice to catch up with you and hear what's going on in your world. A lot of cool things happening. For sure. Thanks, Ken. Well, always appreciate you spending the time and contributing to the show. And for everyone who listens, thank you for your continued participation as an audience member. And again, if you can head on over to Patreon and consider supporting the show, that will not only keep the lights on for us, but it will avail a bunch of extra bonus content to you. And we've got uh, chapters from my memoir. We've got discounts on merchandise. We have early access to different things, some behind the scenes, exclusive stuff. And then once in a while, when I'm on a layover, like I am now, if I'm not recording with you, Ken, I'll just tell everybody, hey, I'm free for the next hour. Jump on the Zoom link and let's chat. So a lot of cool stuff going on on Patreon. Otherwise, that will do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and letting us go back to our roots here with some bantering and old listener questions that we got cleaned out. And that'll do it for this week. Thanks so much for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.